I have a five-year-old named Spencer and a two-year-old named Elijah. Elijah is a little rebel. He's nuts. Spencer loves rules. He loves the boundaries. He loves the rules. He loves knowing what's expected of him. And, and he enjoys making sure other people know the rules and following and are following the rules. So a couple years ago, my wife took my son on a play date to a public pool. It was his first experience at, at a public pool. And nowhere will you find more rules per square inch of real estate than a public pool. And he was introduced to an occupation that he had never known before, but that immediately captivated his little rule-following heart. Because there, in a place with so many rules per square inch, sits a man or a woman eight feet off the ground, armed with a whistle and a bullhorn, not only to enforce the rules, but to publicly embarrass anyone who is out of line. He fell in love with a lifeguard position. So he gets home that day and begins to play his new favorite game, lifeguard. And, and I'm laying there on our, on our king-size bed trying to take a nap, and my son comes in. He's probably three and a half, four years old at the time. And he stacks pillows on the bed so he can have an elevated seat. And he is now the lifeguard of the swimming pool. And, and the game went something like this. The lifeguard says, no sleeping in the pool. <laughs> so I decided to indulge him, and I knew I wasn't going to get sleep anyway at that moment. And, and I, I kind of sat up. And he said, the lifeguard says, no sitting, you must swim. And so I got over and I shoved him off the, off the pillows onto the bed. And he said, the lifeguard says, no pushing the lifeguard. <laughs> that gives us a pretty good idea of the religious culture in Jesus' day and time 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the religious culture in Jesus' day was filled with rules. You want to talk about rules per square inch? They had them by the hundreds. There were 600 rules, 600 plus rules, just there in the Old Testament. And every Jew in Jesus' day and time would have had them memorized from very early on. Like as soon as you were taught to think, As soon as you develop the ability to think on your own, the rules began to be infused in your mind. So as you walked around during any given day, hundreds and hundreds of rules were sunk deep in your subconscious. And then, on top of that, there were rules on top of rules. So if the rule was, don't walk past this this, uh, music stand... There was another rule that says don't walk past the clock so you don't get to the music stand. So there were rules on top of rules. And if that weren't enough, there were these lifeguards called Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, scribes, councilmen, whatever. And they monitored everything. Making sure that if anybody got close to a boundary, 
they were reprimanded quickly and severely. So there was this culture that said, here are the boundaries and you are a miserable failure. And there was nothing you could do. You just sat in this mess because there's no way you could follow all the rules. They couldn't do it. And they sat in a mess too big to clean up. About three years ago, four years ago, at our old house, um, there, was, there was a wall that separated the garage from the family room. At least there used to be a wall that separated the garage from the family room. When I was getting home from work one day, uh, I, I bumped the metal shelving there in front of that wall, mangling it. It was just a little bump, too. It knocked all these cans of paint down onto the hood of the minivan, so I got paint all over the hood of my minivan and a mangled shelf. No big deal. There's about 45 minutes till my wife gets home. <laughs> so I ran into the kitchen, and I got a bunch of wet towels, and I started... Uh, going back to the door to, to go wipe the van off, and I noticed that some of the paneling from our family room had fallen off the wall. I thought, well, that really must have been you know, quite a bump, you know, shaking that paneling off. And I went over and I realized that the drywall had actually cracked because the metal shelving pushed in the drywall in the garage, which pushed in the drywall in the family room. So to try to get at that, I took the, 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 uh, the molding off, and the drywall pretty much fell into the living room. And then I noticed that from that bump, three of the studs had cracked completely and were severed. And as I began to examine that, the drywall on the inside of the garage fell off just in time for my wife to come home. And I could actually see her pull into the garage from the family room. It is no fun to sit in a mess that you can't clean up knowing judgment is on its way. This was life 2,000 years ago, and nothing symbolized this more than a giant curtain that hung in the temple separating the presence of God from human beings. So in our current day, uh, there is a research group by the name of Barna, Barna Research Group, that has uh, done... Um, extensive research all through uh, the, the Christian world and, and, and beyond that. And recently they did a survey. <clears throat> and they asked people, uh, do you believe that when you die, you will go to heaven? Very simple question, very basic question. But the, the, the results of this were a little bit astounding. 64% of the people that were asked said, yes, I believe I will go to heaven when I die. One half of 1% okay, actually said, I believe I will go to hell when I die, um, which I thought was a little interesting. Um, 25%, and this is what I want you to latch on to this morning, 
25% of the people that were asked said, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I, don't, I don't know about you this morning, but if I were going to have something down, if I were going to have clarity on one thing, it would be the result of my eternity. It would be the thing that I would want to know the most. Um, and I, I'm going to illustrate for you guys this morning a, a little bit of a process that, that you and I are all going to be very familiar with. Um, but let's, let's take a look at a passage. I, I'm going to really camp um, in Luke 23, um, where, where we see uh, the criminals on the cross. We're going we're gonna to zero in on these guys and their interaction with Jesus right before um, Jesus' crucifixion. Because here's the deal. This morning... I want, I want you guys to, to, to end your time with us this morning. I want you to leave here full of truth, full of joy, full of hope. Um, I, I want you to, to have the opportunity, and you can have it this morning, where you can leave this morning knowing 100% certainty, no more worrying, no more doubt, no more question, do I belong to Christ? Where is, where is the result? Where is the final destination of my eternity? Luke 23 um, the criminals are hanging on the cross. You guys can follow along up, up on the screen, I think. There we are. Um, keep going. Starting in 39. There we go. Starting verse 39. You guys can read along Luke 23. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too. And let me pause there just for a minute, okay? Some of you are going to be able to relate to this. Either it was your history or it's your, it's your present, present reality, okay? Some people spend their entire lives being angry with God, thinking that all the things that happen to them are, are somehow God's fault. Um, and this, this, this criminal on the cross was no different, right? He turns to Jesus and he's like, so you're the Messiah, right? Okay, so if you're so great, why don't you save yourself, and while you're at it, save us too. Let's say this morning that this mirror right here represents the life that, that God has, has given. And this morning, I, I, want, I want to kind of just, just leave three truths with you guys, three things that I really want you to embrace this morning. And the first one is that I've messed up. Alex talked about... Um, the reality of, of Jesus' time leading up to the time of his, of his death. And, and, um, it, it was, it was a, tough, a tough world to live in. I mean, there, all these rules and rules to protect rules and probably rules beyond those rules as well. And it was difficult. Everyone walked around feeling this heavy weight of failure. Everyone walked around realizing, I'm not good enough. And that was how people felt most of the time. And well, the first truth that we have, to, we have to understand this morning is, I've messed up. So as we continue in this, this passage in, in Luke 23, we'll see something really interesting. Next verse. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. See, the criminal on the other side has got something down, okay? He understands. I'm up here because of what I've done. And, and, a, and a great place for us to start this morning is to understand that we've messed up as well. So if this, if this mirror represents the life that, that God has given us, and you're saying, Dave, okay, so you say I messed up, 
um, let's, let's start at the beginning. When did we start messing up? Okay? It was pretty early. It was really early. Parents, how many of you have to teach your kids to be selfish? Right? They, they got that one down. Okay, our, our daughter, I mean, she's, she is cute as a button. And I, and I love her to death. She's a great girl. But I don't have to send Emerson to sin school. No one has to teach her how to be selfish or to be angry, to disobey, <clears throat> to not tell the truth. She's going to learn or, or develop those things very naturally on her own. And so when we think about it and we're looking at her life and we're considering where it starts, we realize that the mess up starts pretty early. What about as you continue to go? How about elementary school? Did you all of a sudden start obeying your parents, teenagers? Remember? No, right? We all remember that elementary school is no different. Middle school? Middle school? Some of us made mess-ups, made mistakes in middle school that took us forever. And I mean forever. To live down. How about high school? Did it get any better? High school? Listen, I know this is true for myself. There are things that happened in high school that still haunt me today. But then we become adults. And look, I understand. I'm finally now at the point in my life where I'm embracing the fact that I am actually an adult. And we do all kinds of stuff. We make all kinds of mess-ups. And I get it because, see, we even make choices that we don't want to make. We, we regret immediately choices that, we, that we've made as an adult. But the thing we have to understand is that a lot of times those choices that, that we're making now as adults had been formed by the things that happened when we were children. And the patterns just continue into our adulthood. And we find that things just continue to get more and more broken. And so when we recognize that we've messed up, okay, take a look at this mirror and think for just a second. Is, is it possible, looking at these shambles on the ground, is it possible that I could pick this up and I could put this back together. Okay, it's nearly impossible. The second truth that I want for all of us to embrace this morning, no matter where you're at in your, in your walk with God, in your story with Christianity, is that I need help. I need help. I can't, I can't do this on my own. The, 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 the criminal on the cross does something pretty amazing here. Let's take a look at verse 42. Luke 23, 42 he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, Jesus, I can't get there on my own. I live in a, in a, in a harsh reality in this Jewish world that's full of rules, and those rules, many of them, have resulted in me being on this cross. I can't do it on my own. I need help. I want to expose two lies real quick because we try really hard, don't we? We try so hard to fix it on our own. I mean, we, we really work hard. We, how about the performance lie? Are you guys familiar with this? See, the, I don't know if it's true here. I haven't lived here long enough. In the South, duct tape fixes everything. <laughs> right? 
And so we try really hard. We think if we just do the good things, if we, if we just you know, go, to, go to church and we, and we, we treat people kindly and, and we do all those things, we just think, you know, just, just, put a little, just put a little duct tape on it. Yeah, see? People will think it's all fixed up and it looks pretty good. And, you know, we continue to try to do good things. And we think, you know, if we just put enough duct tape on it, maybe, maybe people will think that I'm put together. But how about, how about the religious lie? The religious lie. Go to church every Sunday. You're going you're gonna to carry, a, carry a, a big Bible. You're going to make sure that you're, you know, get involved with a Bible study. or You're going to make sure that your, your kids go to youth group. And that's going to somehow be something that's going to be able to cover up or fix the mess. But I want to just, I want to just, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning, but do hear this, okay? When we do that, it's like we try to just, take and just place a a nice religious symbol over our mess. This morning, eliminating the lies, okay, for just a minute. If we eliminate the lies and we, we set down our performance and our, our attempts to be the best person that we can be, and we set down our religious lies, and we try not to just come into church and, and you know, look all squeaky clean and do all those things, can we just be honest with ourselves this morning that we are desperately in need of help? Let's pick up where, where we left off after Jesus had talked with, with the men on the cross. Down in verse 44 it says, By this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. God is a fan of object lessons, divine object lessons, where things that are happening physically are representing things that are happening spiritually. So as Jesus is dying, at some point, at some moment, while he is finishing up his life here before he died on the cross, God ripped the curtain from top to bottom in the temple, the curtain that symbolized the separation from God and man. At some point, while Jesus was on the cross, and I don't know whether it was some point in the middle or some point at his death or some moment afterward, the price for everything that separates us from God was paid for. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, if you have a blue Bible, it's on page 696. 
verse 18 says, All of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, or, some translations say, to be sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The Bible says that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And at some point while he was on the cross, God made him sin. God piled everything that ever broke your mirror, everything you've ever tried to cover up for, everything you've ever felt guilty about, everything that has kept you up at night feeling horrible about, God piled that onto the cross. Jesus became that, and he died for that. The price for that was paid. Everything, past, present, and future, that I have done to break my mirror, to break who it is that God wants Alex to be, everything was already paid for 2,000 years ago. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, 7-11 in the Blue Bible. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So he's acknowledging your mirror was broken. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. The curtain kept people from standing before God. It was ripped so that you and I can stand before God without a single fault because all of our faults were paid for on the cross. Now the Bible says there are basically three things that we do to receive that. Belief in the sacrifice. Repentance, which means a turn toward God. In other words, I'm living wrong and I need to live right. Kind of like that moment when you step on the scales and you realize, whoa, I got to lose some weight. Okay, that's the moment of repentance. Not after you've already lost the weight, the moment you realize you need it. Okay, repentance is the moment your heart says, I need to change the way I'm living to live for God. And then the third thing is baptism. And baptism is another one of those divine object lessons because just like at some point, we don't know exactly when, God said, 
the sins of the world are officially paid for, at some point in that process of belief, turning, and baptism, God washes your sins away, and baptism is the perfect physical representation of what is going on spiritually. The Bible says it clothes us with Christ so that we even get a mental image of how perfect the forgiveness is that God gives. One more reading. Matthew 28. God doesn't leave Jesus in the grave, and God gives us one more ultimate divine object lesson. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead just as he said would happen. Come and see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed in to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. <coughs> as a church, we believe that Jesus really did die on the cross for the sins of of the world for your sins and mine and we believe that Jesus really did raise from the grave and this is a wonderful object lesson from God because for God it doesn't end with death it doesn't end with a payment for your sins it doesn't even end with forgiveness it begins with new life All right, we're going to have a little support group this morning. How many of you, by confession, okay, don't worry, you won't be alone. How many of you, by confession, literally, raise your hands on this one. You ready? Everyone's like, oh man, what's he going to say? How many of you have ever peeked at a Christmas present? Huh? Yes! <sighs> Misery loves company. Okay, look. I'm the worst. I'm the worst of this, especially when I was a kid. I mean, these presents would, they would start showing up. My uncle, I have an uncle who lives in North Carolina, and he'd always send these, it was always like the cool present to get, you know, from my, my uncle Mike. And uh, it would show up, and my mom, I, I don't know if she just knew that we were going to look at it, so she might as well just put it out in the open, or what the deal was. But that present would sit there and just, I mean, from, from day one, it was this immediate temptation. Like, I've got to know what's in that present. I've got to know. And so we would, we would literally, painstakingly, carefully be pulling that tape not to rip any 
of the wrapping paper because that would be evidence. And we would just keep pulling and we would work on it literally little bits at a time for days. You know, it's like the jailbreak and, the, you know, the, the guard walks by and the guy digs out a spoon and starts digging his hole or whatever. That's, that was us. It was just a little bit at a time. And, and eventually, you know, eventually that flap would come open and we would open it up. And I remember one year, oh, this takes me back. This was, this was classic. Open the box and there was a Nintendo. Not a Wii. Not an N64. Not even a Super Nintendo. Okay, we're going old, old, old school here, okay? Nintendo Classic. My brothers, I mean, I almost wet my pants. I mean, I was so excited because I knew what I was getting for Christmas. Jesus. Jesus. And the truth of his death. And the beautiful truth of his resurrection gives every single one of us the incredible ability to know. I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. Jesus dies on the cross. The curtain is torn. This physical representation of the separation of God and man literally falls to the ground. But he's dead, and people are without hope. And then three days later, the most amazing, astounding, almost, almost hard-to-believe thing happens. And Jesus conquers death and gives us this, this unbelievable picture where we begin to realize as we look in at the story that this is our hope. Look, this is Easter it's Easter. The reason we're even celebrating this day, sometime long ago, and we're not going to get into the history of it, somebody chose that this was going to be the day that we do not necessarily celebrate Jesus' death, but instead his life. And the life that we now have through Jesus Christ. That is the hope that hangs in the balance of Easter. It is our hope. It is everybody's hope here this morning. But see, we've got a little problem Okay, we've got to fix this. We've got to address it. We've got a busted up mirror. And you guys have all heard this. You've heard this before. If you've spent any time in church, there is somebody who has said something like this. Well, Jesus just wants to come in and just fix you all up. The problem with that is it doesn't really hold true to Scripture. Instead, what we find in Scripture is that Jesus promises something a little different. He says you can be new. Why would I want that when I can give you that? For those of us who follow Christ this morning, here's your reason to celebrate. You don't have to hold on to that anymore. It's gone. Jesus took that on the cross and he paid for it. The truth for you who follow Christ is this is you. You're new. You're blameless. You can stand before God on any given day and he will accept you as his son or his daughter. You are new. 
And that is our reason to celebrate this morning.